0: Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly.
1: I've noticed a number of peculiar incidents among the members of the student body, all having to do with rock and roll music. Uh, I'm damn Benjamin.
2: Now, if you don't think this song is the greatest song ever, I will fight you.
3: This week, Sound Opinions is big in Japan as our world tour continues with a stop
2: in Tokyo. I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. And I'm Greg Cotter of the Chicago Tribune. Music journalist Daniel Robson is our guide through the Japanese music scene from J-pop to noise rock. And later in the show, UK singer Jesse Ware's debut album, Land Stateside. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to
3: Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news.
4: Well, enough of Carolina, way
5: back in the hill. Me and my old Pappy, and he had him a still. He grew the white lightning till the sun went down, and then you'd fill him a jug and he'd pass it around. Mighty, mighty please pleasing, Pappy's corn squeezing.
6: White lightning.
2: That is George Jones with a track called White Lightning, a number one hit in 1959 started a decades-long run of huge country hits. George Jones died a few days ago at the age of 81. Defining that honky-tonk style that you're hearing in that song, a close cousin of uh, rock and roll and rockabilly during that era, he was a wild man, that uh, East Texas singer George Jones It took dozens of takes to get that track because George uh, had a drinking problem. You know, to understand this man, you have to understand that he grew up in East Texas, blue-collar family. His mother was very religious. His dad was a hard worker. They both loved music, but his dad was also a violent alcoholic, and that was a trait that George inherited. The one thing about George Jones that you need to know musically is that he never hid any of it. He never tried to be anything but what he was. You know, there's this cliché about what country music is all about. You know, it's about drinking and divorce and my dog died. George Jones didn't play that as corn cliché. He played that for the desperation and the violence and the death that was lurking behind all of those scenarios and brought it into his music. There was an incredible amount of sincerity in that voice. So all those country hits that he had... Almost all of them told an aspect of his personal story. Even when he didn't write the songs, he made them his own by the perspective he brought to them. You know, he had this reputation, no-show Jones. He started not showing up for gigs due to his drinking issues. But his fans always forgave him because he was so transparent about what was going on in his personal life that I think they saw a lot of themselves in what he was singing about. Without a doubt, I think one of the greatest singers in 20th century music. You can talk about any genre you want. George Jones was among the greatest. And in terms of heartbreak ballads, I think this guy owned it. I think he owned the area. He got married four times. Tammy Wynette was the most famous, all of them ended in turmoil except for the final one. He said his final wife, Nancy, was the one who really pulled him out of drinking and allowed him to have a nice 30-year run at the end of his career, where he was kind of the elder statesman of country music. But it was the work that he did in the 60s and 70s and then capping off with this song that I'm going to play next that really established his reputation. A lot of people think this is the greatest country song ever written. George Jones with his number one hit from 1980, he stopped loving her today on Sound Opinions.
5: He said, I'll love you till I die She told him you'll forget in time As the years went slowly by She still prayed upon his mind He kept her picture. In 1962 He had underlined In red Every single I love you I went to see him Just today Oh but I didn't See no tears All dressed up To go away First time I'd seen him Smile in
4: years
5: He stopped loving her Today It plays to.
3: I was the great George Jones with He "He Stopped Loving Her Today from 1980, predicting Greg his death at the end of it, and now he is gone at the age of 81.
2: For the listening to Sound Opinions, I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRogatis, and that's the Japanese pop duo Puffy AmiYumi inviting us to visit Planet Tokyo. And that's exactly what we're going to do this week. It's stop two on the Sound Opinions World Tour, our series looking at popular music around the world. Now remember, a few weeks ago we were in Sweden. Today, it's on to Japan.
3: Greg, Japanese and American bands do share some musical DNA. If you go back to the 50s, that era following the U.S. occupation of Japan after the Second World War, it's not surprising that Japanese musicians were early adopters of rock and roll sounds because they were hearing them from America. There were Japanese surf guitar bands, Japanese rockabilly groups, and plenty of Beatles and Monkeys imitators, some of them pretty credible as imitations go. I'm thinking of a band like the Tigers, uh, fronted by teen idol Julie Sawada. The Tigers had Beatles haircuts, a Beatles pop sensibility, and they were singing in crystal clear English.
4: Smile.
3: But it didn't take long for Japanese rockers to start putting their stamp on things. Happy End is a good example. Kind of sounds like Buffalo Springfield, early 70s rock, but they're singing exclusively in Japanese. Back then, Japanese lyrics were revolutionary. People didn't think you could sing real rock music in Japanese, and today it's common practice. <laughs>
2: And the scene exploded from there, Jim. You've got electronica, metal, noise, dance pop. Modern Japan seems to have everything. But it it can be tough to navigate for non-Japanese speakers. So we recruited a local to be our guide. Daniel Robson is features editor at the Japan Times and the host of the music podcast, It Came From Japan. Daniel, welcome to Sound Opinions. Hello, thanks for having me. We're glad to have you. So you're originally from Britain, but you've been living in Tokyo since 2005 and you've been chronicling the music scene there. So what got you interested in Japanese music in the first place?
0: Uh, well, the first thing I heard was Shonen Knife. You know, Shonen Knife are a kind of a punk, ramones style punk band from Osaka, who uh, back in those days were touring with Nirvana and stuff like that. I thought uh, it sounded like the craziest thing I'd ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> they wrote songs about, uh, well, they still do write songs about ice cream and sweets and <laughs> yeah. uh, rock animals and, uh, you know... Crazy stuff like that. a bit like Bjork it has that sort of strange pronunciation of English. So did Naoko from Shonen Knife.
2: So this opens the door to Japanese music for you? Is it like a case of, OK, I want to hear more of this type of music? And, and you just started exploring?
0: Yeah, so I had a, a friend at college, a Japanese guy in my class, who um, he said, well, if you like Shonen Knife, then you should listen to Puffy, <laughs> uh, who in the States you might know as Puffy AmiYumi. Uh, again, you know, it's, it's just... I mean, it's pop music and it's, you know, pop in its purest form, but at the same time, it's heavily influenced by 60s rock and 70s rock, just mashing all kinds of genres together. And uh, you didn't get that sort of pop music in, in England or America.
2: talking about the 90s now, right? Late 90s. Yeah. Late 90s. So how has that music evolved? What have you seen in the last decade or so in terms of that sound and its evolution?
0: How it's changed itself is that J-pop has become less interesting. Like uh, Japan was was in a bubble period in the 80s and 90s which led to a lot of spending of money on uh, production and a lot of experimentation and taking risks, which when the bubble period ended and everybody didn't have the money to to spend uh, it became extremely formulaic to the point where most j-pop now is kind of unlistenable if you're not <laughs> if you're coming to it with fresh ears i mean you you may know about akb48 i mean i shouldn't say unlistenable but it's really hardcore like pop saccharine pop music but the underground stuff has just got madder and madder well we definitely um, want to pick your brain
3: daniel on the underground mm. music but before we get too far away from j-pop what is idol music and how can you have this band, AKB48, with, with what,
0: 88 members? <laughs> oh, it's mad. I, I Recently, I actually had to count them up, and it took me <laughs> half the morning just to tr- triple-checking it. Yeah, so the way that works is uh, the guy who produces them, a guy called Yasushi Akimoto, he started out producing a group called the Onyanko Club in the uh, 80s, I guess. It was a similar kind of thing. It was a, a group of about around 50 girls, sort of revolving membership and it was a big hit. Later on you had groups like Morning Musume in the 90s who were huge for about, you know, 10 years where members would join the band young and then when they got to a certain age they would graduate to a solo career and new fresh members would join the group afterwards. So AKB kind of it was kind of a natural progression from all of that, I guess. It's not actually just those girls in AKB48 because there's also spin-offs AKB stands for Akihabara, which is the area of Tokyo, the sort of uh, nerd culture uh, capital of Tokyo. Mm. Uh, and that's where they came from. But you also have in Osaka, you have NMB48, which is, stands for Number 48 <laughs> which is, you know, the similar area in Osaka. And you have HKT48 and SKE48 from all the different parts of around Japan. So there's hundreds of them, actually. And the fans, when they buy a physical CD, none of their music is available digitally at all. Really? Uh, when you buy the physical CD, oh, yeah. You get a voting slip to vote for your favourite girl in the group and whichever one gets the most votes gets the best advertising contracts or gets to sing the solo in the next song or whatever gets special treatment. So the fans want to support their favourite girl. And because they're all (laughs) like girl-next-door types who are plucked out of obscurity and have no discernible talent when they start out and they're always trying to do better and win over their fans' appreciation and I'm going to do my best for you guys, that kind of thing, It endears them to the fans. Am I wrong, Daniel, to say there's a little bit of element of hunger games
3: here? It sounds a little scary. What happens to the one they don't like? Let's talk about the videos because they're surreal when we as westerners <laughs> watch them. I'm thinking of something like the J-pop star and I'm going to slaughter this name. Is it Kayari Pamu Pamu? Is that uh, right? Kayari Pamu Pamu. Okay, so you've got all these eyeballs and toast in the video and this weirdness. I mean, is it intentionally Dolly-esque surrealness or is, does is this have something that we just aren't processing in the west?
0: Uh, that's an extreme example. Uh, Kayari Pamu Pamu originally started out as a fashion blogger And became a fashion model and then a pop star. In Japan, it's it's quite common for a a kind of a talent to be an all rounder, and so they they might be acting in TV dramas and also putting out music and also modelling or whatever. So she does uh, music as part of the package, if you know what I mean. Mm. And her thing is the Harajuku style, which has evolved, I guess, from when Gwen Stefani picked up on it to just being it's extremely garish and uh, sort of intentionally grotesque and that's cute you know the the cute element of grotesqueness and that's what she picks up on so yeah you've got the eyeballs and the teeth and she dresses up as uh monsters and vampires and whatever i think that's definitely part of her appeal
2: I want to get back to a point you made earlier about the way some of these J-pop stars are marketed, especially the women. You know, your starting point for this discussion was a band like Shonen Knife. And, you know, we talked about Puffy as well, where I think the role of women was quite a bit different. Is there sort of this dichotomy where you've got this sort of traditional objectification of some of these uh, Japanese female pop stars, and then you've got sort of more of an underground thing where women are, are a big part of it on, on sort of more of an independent level?
0: I think so. I mean, I think for sure there's a much better balance in Japan of women and men in music. Uh it's kind of maybe 50-50. I mean, it feels pretty close to that. You know, in in the pop circles, sure, it's it's an industry dominated by men behind the scenes. It's it's mostly men, most of the A&R people, most of the management people. Also across, you know, all industries in Japan, women are not treated in in an equal regard to men. I have occasionally in the past asked some of the, the female bands that I've interviewed, why do you think it is that Japan has so many women making music? And they say, well, we're under the thumb in our daily lives, but when we pick up a guitar, we can make as much noise as we want.
2: When we return, a dive into the Japanese underground with Tokyo-based music writer Daniel Robson. And later, we weigh in on soul star Jesse Ware's U.S. debut. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
0: is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois.
1: My name is Kami,
2: and I'm from Nagasaki, Japan. In Japan, in a broader meaning, Idols are referred as good-looking young male or female individuals or group singing and dancing, singing about love, um, well, broken heart, and teenage boys and
1: girls admire them and sometimes have a crush on them. I'm I'm not
2: exactly enthusiastic idol fans, but uh, what I like, the group called is Momoiro Clover Death.
5: Among all these idols around, to me that the Memorial Clover Z is slightly
2: different. They seem to try to go beyond the boundaries of genre. For example idol, pop, rock and hip-hop and even comedy.
3: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DiRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that was Sound Opinions fan Kami from Nagasaki making the case for the idol group Momo Iro, Clover Zed. Greg, we need more names like that in America. (laughs) This is part of our second stop on Sound Opinions' world tour, Japan, and we're exploring it with Tokyo-based music writer Daniel Robson, host of the music podcast It Came From Japan. We've already talked about J-pop, Japan's main musical export, Now we're going underground. These are some of the bands that have gotten us excited about Japanese music. For me, Greg, first and foremost, it's the Boredoms. Originally formed in the mid-'80s, I think they made their biggest impact in the United States in the early to mid-'90s. They were part of Lollapalooza in 1994 when it was the traveling day-long alternative rock festival. I will never forget. They're the first act of the day. It's me and these four grungy guys from Oklahoma, the Flaming Lips, standing front and center while we are being pummeled by this noise assault. There's ambient synthesizer washes and there's incredible tribal drumming.
2: Jim, I hear what you're saying about the Boredoms. It's almost a band like you've got to see them live to get the full effect. And the Acid Mother's Temple are another band out of Japan, very much similar to that. The founding member, Kawabata Makato, told me that he wanted to combine deep purple style hard rock with Stockhausen's electronic music. Mm. You hear Eastern elements in there, sitars, throat singing like you might hear from the Tuvan tribes in southern Siberia with his hard driving guitars and rhythm. Of course, these aren't the only Japanese groups with indie cred in the U.S. You know, I'd add Ghost, Cornelius, Boris to that list. Daniel, how have these kinds of artists fared in Japan?
0: Uh, Do you know a band called Melt Banana? Sure, sure. They're another of those bands that are big in the States and in Europe. When I first moved to Tokyo, uh, on the first night I got here, they were playing a show, and um, I turned up, you know, I, I ran from the airport. Dumped all my stuff and, and went straight to the show and there was probably about five people in the audience. Or oh 10, you know? wow! Whereas when when you saw them in Britain, it was packed and it's the, it's the same with well, uh, Boris are fairly popular, but An Acid Mother's Temple, but it's the same with a lot of those groups that we know in the West. Probably here, they're not that well known.
2: So you're saying uh, that a band like the Boredoms, they could play to I've seen them play to a thousand people here in the U.S. Easily, you know, it's an event when they play here they're not nearly as large as some of these J-pop stars in Japan, is what you're saying?
0: Oh, no. I mean, basically, in Japan, the media is uh, works in a very different way than the States and Europe. Uh, it's kind of based on an, a 50s model. So everything is driven by payola. So what that means is that a band cannot really get on TV because it's all controlled by the production companies behind the J-pop acts and all the print media is paler and, and therefore it's like reading a catalog <laughs> uh, all the radio there's there's no national radio and there's you know local radio stations but it's not uh, anywhere near as like big as in the states because people don't drive everywhere so it's very hard for a band to find an organic path i think that's where uh, bands like melbanana and and uh, boris uh tokumaru shugo um tokiwa have kind of uh, pushed in that direction where okay if people don't want to hear us in Japan we'll find an audience overseas and a lot of other bands you know are, are doing that too
2: There's no, like, fanzine culture, no underground sort of media at all to sort of champion some of these underground bands?
0: Oh, there certainly is. So Niko Niko Doga is Japan's equivalent to YouTube with the difference that you can post comments. They sort of fly over the video picture in real time when you're watching it back. And so it creates a kind of this community thing. Groups like Shinsei Kamate-chan, who are completely mental, (laughs) in the most complete way, punk band influenced by anything from anime songs to video game music to punk. Groups like that thrive on NikoNikoDoga.
3: Are there particular bands in the underground, Daniel, that are really in opposition? When you have this music industry dominated by payola, when you have a, a pervasive kind of a culture-wide sexism, you know, are there bands that are that are taking that on? You know, is there a Pussy Riot for Japan?
0: Uh, Not in such an extreme fashion. I I think a lot of the bands kind of accept their role in where they are in the ecosystem. You know, Japan culturally places a great emphasis on where you stand in regard to other people and you use different vocabulary for people who are more important than you, i.e. they're higher up in the company or they're older than you or whatever, than you would for somebody who's lower down than you, you know, on, on the pecking order. I think that's reflected in the way that maybe a lot of bands are quite comfortable just playing smaller shows they just don't believe that it's possible to break through so they don't bother and you know it would be nice to see them be more aggressive but some of them are uh, sheena ringo is a hugely iconic female artist who although you know what she sings is is very much j-pop it has unusual jazz and rock tinges to it and a lot of wordplay and she's very smart Let's talk about another
2: subculture, uh, Visual K. Tell us about it.
0: Visual K, it's a, a genre that probably some of your listeners in the West might know about because some of those bands have been playing to huge venues in the States and in Europe. Thousands and thousands and thousands of fans, groups like X-Japan and Lark-on-Seal. And it's a genre that has its roots in 80s, goth and heavy metal, and from there, it's diversified into all sorts of weird subgenres. But I guess the main thread is that it's, as the name visual suggests, it's partly about dressing up and looking smoking hot while you're doing it. And so <laughs> uh, there's a lot of men with eyeliner and uh, sort of le- electrolyted what do you call it when you don't need to shave because you zap off all your facial hair with a laser? Oh, electrolysis. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, Greg does sil- that. <laughs> electrolysis, yeah. It's. it's <laughs> So it's like super silky. I I once asked one of these guys about it. I said, doesn't it hurt? And he was like, yeah, well, but I play visual game music, so what can I do? But some of it is just phenomenal because the the productions are really epic, and all the while they're dressed up like uh, 18th century French ponces.
3: Now, Daniel, I just want a reality check here. Now, we are not being culturally insensitive by thinking that a lot of this is very
0: strange, are we? Well, I don't think it's strange because probably I listen to a lot of it, uh, and, and I live here, but the melodies are different in Japanese music than they are in the West. It, it's evolved partly from Western music, and there's a lot of influence from rockabilly, rock and roll. The Ventures were bigger than the Beatles here, and, and that's had a huge effect on Japanese music. But... uh, From the other side of it, you have a Japanese sort of sensibility that's grown out of minyo and enka and Kyoku, which are kind of traditional forms of popular music through the ages. It's merged together to create... A sound, a, a, especially in the melody, that's very different than it is in the West, I think. But let, let's look at mm. it from the other side
3: of the funhouse mirror. What are the Western acts <laughs> from Britain or the U.S. that are appealing to Japan and why? I mean, there's that age-old joke, you know, Spinal Tap, we're big in Japan, right? So, so what is it that <laughs> Japanese audiences see in Western acts that they relate mm. to?
0: I mean, basically, Western music isn't that popular in Japan at the moment. Um, it's been on the decline these days, uh, it's less than 20% of music sales yeah. uh, comes from outside of Japan. And the stuff that does sell, it's
3: album-driven. So, Daniel, does that mean that the Japanese music industry has been making money, whereas the, the American industry is you know, falling apart?
0: This week, actually, it was officially announced that the Japanese music industry has become the world's number one uh, huh. in terms of sales, which I'm sort of surprised it took that long because Japan's been in the black while everybody else has been in the red for a long time. It is uh, price protected like many industries are here. So a CD, you know, the price is stamped onto the packaging and you, you don't shop around for a cheaper deal because it's basically going to be the same price everywhere. Uh, and that's a high price. It's uh, For a J-pop CD, it can be about 3,000 yen, which is, I don't know what the exchange rate is now, but probably like 20, 30 bucks. Oh, wow. Um, and no pirating. Uh, well, not no piracy, but very little. And it, recently it became a criminal offense at the end of 2012 to... Uh, upload or download music really Uh, so So, that's yeah
2: digital is not usurped physical in terms of the way music is distributed
0: i don't think so i mean itunes took a long time to get going in japan and it was only late last year that sony japan joined itunes give us a couple of acts
3: that are really going to excite listeners here uh that may not be familiar to them from japan right now that you're getting excited about
0: Well, one band that's, uh, they're actually long finished, but it's an example of just how amazing Japanese pop music has been. A group called Judy and Mary, which was a four-piece band, three guys with a female singer called Yuki. Although they were a J-pop band, they just had this rampantly eclectic rock music with these wild guitar lines, just completely huge. And you know how like some bands, they'll save the last song on the album is, is the epic song. But Judy and Mary, every song is that epic song with this huge <laughs> chorus. You know, they, they, they broke up, but they still have a, a lot of influence over bands that are coming up today.
3: So Judy and Mary, sophisticated J-pop.
0: What else you got for us, mm. Daniel? In terms of rock bands, um, there's a group called Mama Drive who are up and coming. They come from Kobe, which is on the west side of Japan, and uh, they make sort of post-rock, I guess. It's melodic and it's really rhythmic because a, a lot of Japanese pop music, especially rhythm, is takes a back seat to lyrics and melody. But this stuff is really aggressive. The singer, she plays bass and sings, and she has this... Effects rack that she turns on and off that gives her this multi voice, you know, within a weird sort of pitch shifted octave above her own voice. Also, uh, we talked about Kyari Pamu Pamu earlier on. She is, like I said, this fashion person. Um, I don't think she's particularly in control of the music that she's making, but her producer is worth talking about a guy called Yasutaka Nakata, who produced a group called Perfume. Perfume just exploded, really super tight dance routines and stuff like that. And the music is Maximal House with really, really, really dense production. You could turn it up as loud as you possibly can and blow your speakers out, kind of thing. Mm. It's just amazing. Mm. The same producer is producing Kyari Pamu Pamu, and actually at Summer Sonic, which is one of the big international rock festivals here. I was talking to Grimes and to Passion Pit from uh, Canada and the States who were playing at the festival and "Kali Pamu Pamu had just been on and both of them were sort of enthusing over her. Uh, Grimes was, when I went up to her to start our interview, she was busy taking notes on her laptop about production ideas to swipe from "Kali Pamu Pamu. Uh, so, you know, I think uh, if he ever worked with an artist in the West uh, and... Passion Pit talked about that maybe happening one day. I think he could be absolutely like a massive producer on a kind of a worldwide level.
3: What about big picture, Daniel? Are there generalizations to be made about Japanese sounds? We've said that melody and lyrics tend to be more important than rhythm, but what else can we say in general about Japanese music?
0: Well, talking, I mean, specifically about pop or rock music, it is heavily influenced by music that's come from the West, and it's also heavily influenced by music that's come from within Japan. Also, recently, uh, video game music is having a huge effect on the younger band's I don't know if you're familiar with the games like final fantasy and dragon quest where they have these epic arrangements and stuff you can hear mm-hmm. some of that creeping into these these bands music it's sort of like if you went to have a hamburger here it would not look or taste like a hamburger did in the states but it would be delicious it would just be a different kind of delicious you mm-hmm. know what i mean it's um it's like taking all sorts of influences and just giving them back in a, in a different way
2: Daniel Robson is features editor at the Japan Times and the host of the music podcast, It Came From Japan. Daniel, thanks for joining us on Sound Opinions. Thank you. Yeah, thanks very much for having me.
3: For more about the music we played during this segment, visit the footnotes at soundopinions.org. And we want to hear from you. Who's your favorite Japanese artist? And where should the Sound Opinions World Tour go next? Give us a call at 888-859-1800. We're going to take a quick break on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And when we come back, we'll review soul singer Jesse Ware's U.S. debut, and Greg will drop a quarter in the Desert Island Jukebox. sound opinions. We are listening to a song called Wildest Moments by Jessie Ware. Greg, that was a big hit in the summer of 2012 in the UK. Her debut album, Devotion, came out in August 2012 in England but it's only coming out Here Now as a proper U.S. release with two unreleased bonus tracks. And Ware actually toured the U.S. and and got quite a bit of traction before her record was even out. This is a young woman, 28 years old, who was raised in South London and has been kicking around the music scene for some time, working with other artists, primarily subtract that British house DJ whose presence is felt here on this record as well. What are we getting in this proper debut album? The Brits have called it The Missing Link between Adele, Subtract, and Charday, Let's hear a song and we'll come back and give our opinions. This is Still Love Me by Jesse Ware on Sound Opinions.
2: Still Love Me from the Jesse Ware debut album, Devotion. Jim, I love that track. It's all about what's going on outside the margins there, the, you know, that, that shadow play that's going on with her voice and those chiming keyboards. You've almost got a dub reggae feel, but it's not reggae at yeah, all, but yeah. it, it, it sort of feels that way. And I I love that aspect of this record. You know, the key for me is that she came up as a background singer. She's very modest. She's got a great voice, but you wouldn't necessarily know it from listening to a number of these tracks. It's all about her voice being another instrument in these subtle, sophisticated textures. Ambience. Now, when I walk, you know, you walk out a word like sophisticated or ambience, a a lot of people immediately go to boring next, you know? It's like, (laughs) do I really want to hear this record? But there's detail here in, in the recording that's very good. The way she uses her voice as an instrument is very good and the other thing is I think that restraint is a choice it's not a limitation I think when you talk about a singer like Chardet you think about limitation on the voice with Jessie Ware she can belt when she needs mm. to I there, there's several examples here taking in water Running, and I think the most beautiful moment on the record, uh, the the track "Something Inside," a very sparse track. There's a little break where her voice just sort of takes over, and it's just this this angelic, celestial thing going yeah, on yeah. there. And you go, what a great singer she is. It's a buy-it record for me.
3: Uh, It's a buy-it record for me as well, Greg, and you summed up all the things I like about it very well. Let me put it in some context. I think something really interesting is happening in R&B by artists who are not considered (laughs) traditional R&B right now. You know, after years of domination of very slick Usher and R. Kelly kind of productions, you're getting very strange productions from artists like The Weeknd, Frank Ocean, Rye, Solange Knowles, and now this record. You know, these records have nothing in common. And I don't even know if any of these artists would claim the R&B or soul mantle, but it's in that vein. They're talking about different things, different personal vulnerabilities than the traditional R&B tropes and the sound, the wild sound experimentation. It's a whole new palette. Uh, I'm really encouraged by it. I love this record.
4: I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Remember, we were shipwrecked together?
3: As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, one of us likes to take a trip to the desert island and play you a track we cannot live without. This week, Greg Cott has climbed in the bathysphere and traveled out to the
2: island. Greg, what do you got? Jim, every once in a while I go on this uh, Miles Davis jag I I take a period of his life and I just play all those records And lately I've been investigating the Jazz Fusion records And when people talk about Miles and Jazz Fusion You know, his first exploration of rock, power, and electronics They immediately think about records like In a Silent Way And especially Bitches Brew But I think the pinnacle of that whole scene for Miles And one of the pinnacle moments in his career Was really a record that came after those two A tribute to Jack Johnson. It came out in 1971, and I think it is the best Miles Davis record of that era. There's basically two tracks on the record. Side one, 27 minutes, a track called Write-Off. Side two, another epic called Yester Now that goes on for 25 minutes. And essentially, uh, Miles had perfected his studio language in collaboration with producer Teo Macero. Uh, Macero was the editor. He would just roll tape, And Miles, you go to town with whoever Mm. you want to bring in that day, and we'll figure it out later on. Well, uh, Miles was intrigued by what was going on in the records of Jimi Hendrix and Sly Stone at the time, and he brought in players like John McLaughlin on guitar and Billy Cobham on drums and Michael Henderson on bass. Michael Henderson had just come off tour with Stevie Wonder. He played on a number of those great Motown sides. Uh, The story goes that McLaughlin shows up early one day and then, Cobham and Henderson wander in and they're bored, so they just start jamming. Miles walks in a few minutes later. He hears these guys going to town. He's so inspired. He picks up his horn, and people say they'd never heard Miles play quite like the way he does on this track. Normally, he's noted for that muted tone, you know? He, he's, mm. he's mellow, he's, he's cool, he's laid back. Here, he's got a piercing, aggressive tone to his trumpet playing that was really a revelation to all involved. It's impossible, obviously, to play all of these lengthy tracks here, (laughs) but we're going to jump into the middle of Right Off, where Miles really starts going to town. And one of the reasons he's going to town, not only this heavyweight rhythm section with Cobham and Henderson playing underneath him, but listen to the way John McLaughlin's playing his guitar. It's got this dirty, clipped tone to it that he himself had never really explored previously in his playing. But Miles basically said, play the guitar like you're picking it up for the first time, like you've never heard the guitar before. And he got this out of McLaughlin. It's Miles Davis with Right Off on Sound Opinions.
3: was a taste of miles davis right off greg Cott's desert island jukebox pick greg someday when i grow up i'm gonna learn to appreciate jazz <laughs> what do we have on the show next week
2: you better get going jim time's running out Next week, Jim, we're going to have more hard rock psychedelia for you, an in-studio visit and performance from Tame Impala. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is
3: produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, and Annie Minhoff. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, is Tori Southside Malatia. He's turning Japanese. He's turning Japanese? I really think so. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say.
6: New messages. Hello, this is Ross in Indiana. I'm calling about the Nick Drake feature you just did. Um, I discovered Nick Drake in 1998 uh, when the local record store owner handed me a copy of Peak Moon and said, here, you ought to listen to this. Went home at night and going to bed and had my headphones on. And I popped in Pink Moon and my life changed. Two years later, I was in the United Kingdom and made a special pilgrimage to Tamworth and Arden, the little town that he was from, so I could pay my respects. And was at his uh, graveside and this gentleman was walking his, one of the locals was walking his golden retriever by. And he had never heard of Nick Drake and could not fathom why I had come so many miles to pay my respects. And so I gave him my, my copy of the three albums that I had with me. And it was the most zealous proselytizing I've ever done in my entire life. I just knew that by giving this guy these records from this guy in his own hometown, I was changing his life for the better. I hope we're all rediscovering his legacy in our own ways. Thanks for the show.
1: Hi. Um, I've been listening to Nick Drake since about 2001 and it, so, it seems so funny to me that you just did a show on him because I just got back to Chicago uh, from visiting my sister who recently had a really hard time in her life one day when she was out of the house I was playing my music and Place to Be came on and it really made me break down but it also made me feel like I was a better sister for her those lyrics are so optimistic When I was green
4: Where flowers grew and the sun shone still Now I'm darker than the deepest sea Just hand me down, give me
1: a place to be And then I introduced it to her as a parting guest and she loves it, and she's going to be okay. And I guess I just wanted to say that uh, uh, thank you to Nick Drake, whoever he is. Thank you to uh, Joe and Stuntin for putting together such a great show and for changing lives in a real way every day through music. Hi, this is Mike from Mineola, Long Island, New York. I met Joe Boyd at the EMP Pop conference in New York just a couple of weeks ago and he had mentioned that most people become acquainted with Nick Drake through a relationship where the other person says there's this fellow named Nick Drake you must hear and if you don't appreciate him this relationship can't go any further well I told Joe that I did not come across Nick Drake that way I heard of Nick Drake by reading his obituary in Crawdaddy magazine I still remember the headline, Death of a Recluse, and that started me down the path to discover his music, and I'm very glad I did. And I did meet Nick arranger at a tribute done to Nick at Summer Stage in New York. They said, let's give Nick something that he never heard much of in his life, a round of applause. And I remember applauding and looking up to the heavens saying, thanks, Nick.
4: I would be, I should be, but I hope. I could have been what are these things for? No more messages. I could have
2: been what are these things
4: for?
2: To share your opinions on sound opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.